All right. Good morning again. As Teacher Gladys said, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I know, it feels a little funny. Um, we're not quite there yet. It feels like we're out of sync with the world. But as Gladys mentioned, uh, and she mentioned to me earlier this week, we were just chatting about it. Happy New Year. This is the beginning of the, uh, the, beginning of the church year, the liturgical calendar, the church year. You can say it in a bunch of ways during which the church sort of goes through this progression uh, every year, uh, and we sometimes touch upon it and are sometimes really obvious about that and sometimes not, during which we walk through uh, the life and the ministry of Jesus. And that usually starts in the Old Testament, looking forward during these four weeks of Advent that begin four Sundays before Christmas, uh, with time in the Old Testament looking forward to the great prophet or the Messiah who was to come, uh, then we celebrate his birth on Christmas, then Epiphany, then Transfiguration Sunday, then Ash Wednesday, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter, um, Pentecost after that, Trinity Sunday, Trinity Sunday, Pentecost, and then Christ the King Sunday, All Saints Day, way uh, off in the fall. So we go through that rhythm. Uh, some of us, some churches uh, practice that more uh, evidently than others. Uh, we do and we don't uh, here and there. But uh, Happy New Year. Uh, welcome to Advent. Uh, this is a, a good time for us to prepare. The world's kind of doing one kind of preparation out there for Christmas, and the church is doing kind of a different parallel kind of preparation, uh, which is supposed to be and historically has been this inward work, contemplative work, inward work, uh, kind of like Lent is in the spring. Um, so not exactly what the world's doing with uh, all of the world's things, but uh, good nevertheless. So Happy New Year. Uh, frequently during, uh, as I said, during Advent, the church spends time in the Old Testament. We're not going to do Old Testament this Advent, uh, but we are going to look at the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke as kind of our text for these four weeks. The first chapter of the Gospel of Luke is long. It is 80 verses long. We're going to divide it up into four weeks starting uh, this morning. Luke is in no hurry to get to the birth of Jesus and uh, in his narrative. But I think there's also a message in that for us and for the church of uh, soak in that time, rest in that time, wait in that time, pay attention in that time, in this time, as we prepare for the arrival of the Lord. Uh, so that's what we're gonna be doing uh, this morning and for the next three Sundays. Uh, before we get into Luke, uh, pray one more time with me. Uh, God, in some ways, our lives speed up, uh, many of our lives, or become more complex, or fuller, or more complicated, or busier, sometimes more stressful during this season that we have entered and are entering now, out there in our lives out there. We ask that you would help us to slow down, even to cease, to Sabbath, uh, to pay attention uh, to get away to solitary, quiet, desolate places as Jesus did periodically in order to pay attention to your grand narrative. Uh, I ask and pray that as uh, we go through Luke this morning, that as my words are true to your word that we will read, that you would uh, help bring that, impress that upon each of us, our minds and our hearts. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, May they be immediately and forever forgotten. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
So now beginning to read uh, from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter one, I'm gonna skip over four, uh, the first four verses where Luke kind of as an author says, here's why I'm writing, I wanna do an orderly account, uh, kind of an interesting introduction, kind of like a preface in a book you may pick up at Barnes and Noble today. We're gonna jump over those four verses, start at verse five, Luke writes in his narrative, in the time of Herod, king of Judea. And so Luke interestingly begins his account of, uh, of history with history, in history, grounded in history, because he wants his readers to know very much. This is not like a story about Whoville. This is not about the North Pole. This is not even about Narnia. What he is about to tell us is grounded in history. It may feel like sort of myth, legend, uh, fiction from of old, like much else that we read even during this Christmas season. But Luke wants us to know this is grounded in history. In the time of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Aaronic priests had been divided into 24 divisions named after Aaron's 24 sons. Uh, they took turns serving at the altar and the temple in Jerusalem, a huge honor. There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron, Moses' brother, priests. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. So uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth are a sweet older couple, or maybe more accurately, they're just a sweet old couple. <laughs> they were good people, they were faithful people, they were obedient people, they were loving people. And so Elizabeth's barrenness was certainly not because of any shortcoming or sin or deficiency or disobedience or unfaithfulness on her part. There's no question about that. It's important to hear that today. Elizabeth's barrenness, or rather the Elizabeth and Zacharias. Inability to have a biological child of their own was not because of any shortcoming or sin of their own, as some people sometimes begin to think. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, Luke tells us. Observing the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Sometimes we don't get what we want or what we hope for or what we think is really good or what is even God's will. Not because of some deficiency or sin on our part, but simply because that's the way things are. And we can't understand some of those things. Though sometimes God brings glory to himself through his sovereignty over and in such situations. We know that all things, Paul wrote, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called to his purpose according to his purpose. Verse eight. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot. It's not real complicated but it was a means by which they understood that God would reveal his will and select people. Chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Couldn't get too close. There were 18,000 priests in Israel at this time. A priest would only officiate at the sacrifice once in his life, if at all having been elected by Lot. The particular setting of the event Luke's describes here is one of two daily times of prayer, 9 a.m., 3 p.m., in around the center of the temple. And it was the high priest, or it was the priest Zechariah's turn, the high point of his life, the high point of his life, pinnacle. 
This all happens, notice now, in the context of worship. When God's people are gathered in his name for worship. I know that worship attendance uh, in the Western church and the church in the United States, and certainly after COVID-9-11, 9-11, COVID-19, feels like a 9-11, did at times. Thankfully, we're moving. Worship attendance is down, continues to be down across the United States, the Western world, the peninsula, this church. But that doesn't mean that it's not really good and important for the people of God to gather in person. Live stream, if that's the best we can do. But there is something rich and powerful about when God's people are together. I can sing at home, I can worship God alone, but when God's people come together, it's not the main point here, but it's interesting that what God does, he does in the context of his gathered people when they're worshiping him. Our expectations of such should remain high. I will note here also that God is at work from within. Not from outside the institutions, the rituals, and the practices of Judaism. God is at work in and through the normal avenues of life in the believing community. God meets us through our regular practices of gathering, singing, praying, hearing, listening, and being attentive to his voice together. Not always when we're together, but often in the togetherness, the gathered body of his family. And then verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. And this fear, of course, is the normal response to angels in Luke's gospel and Luke's other book and in most of the writings in the New Testament. But it's also true that encounters with angels are not normal either. Not now, not then. And so when one encounters an angel, fear is a natural response to be afraid. The word angel in the uh, Bible, angelos, just means messenger. Luke describes the angel as an angel of the Lord or a messenger of the Lord. The Lord chose to use an angel to deliver this message to Zechariah. And interestingly about angels, I think our ideas about angels come largely, if not primarily, from Hallmark, Disney, pop culture, their presence of them actually waxed and waned, not so much in the Old Testament, a little bit, but waxed and waned throughout Jewish history. Sometimes uh, more, sometimes less, not a whole lot ever, though. Their presence uh, uh, sort of goes up and down. Pharisees believed in them. God sometimes worked through them. Pharisees believed that they were sort of mediators between humanity and God. Angels, however, were only one means of how God communicated with his people. You know, over in Matthew's gospel, it's often dreams in the birth narrative, right? You remember dreams, Luke, angels, messengers. Some New Testament writers say nothing about angels. The apostle Paul speaks of them, but not really positively, if you notice. Apparently, angels were widely regarded as free creatures, one commentator wrote, able to serve or to oppose the work of God. Notice closely in the scriptures. Verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. Okay, now there's a little bit more reason to be afraid. Not just because this is highly unusual, but you're not sure what the angel is going to do or say. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, which is what angels almost always say because everyone's always afraid, right? 
The angel says to him, do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy to you. And the reader gets the impression that Zechariah's and maybe also Elizabeth's primary prayer, in other words, your prayer, was for a child. It had been for a child, their prayer. They had hoped and prayed to be blessed with a child of their own for probably decades, maybe more than decades, maybe many. And now an angel appears to Zechariah on what may have been the most important day of his life, the one day on his life in which he would be privileged to offer incense before the Lord in the temple on behalf of the people of Israel in Judea and all over the world. Like this is the global center of worship for Jews. Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, of course, as every child is. And many will rejoice because of his birth. Okay, that's nice. Neighbors, friends, relatives, lots of rejoicing. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. That too sounds good, maybe especially to a Jewish couple who are upright, blameless, pure, seeking God. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. And now things are starting to sound a little bit unusual not just in the narrative, but to Joseph. A little unusual, a little curious, a little out of the ordinary. Maybe this isn't sort of the normal way things happen. Zechariah may be starting to wonder even more about what's going on here. Verse 16. He will bring back many of the people to Israel, many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. It's no longer an ordinary baby. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What, what, what? Bring back people of Israel to their God in the spirit and the power of Elijah. We were just hoping for a little boy. <laughs> Get ready for the Lord. Zechariah. Zechariah and Elizabeth had at some point spent a lot of time praying for a child, but just a child, an ordinary child, and they'd probably actually stopped praying that prayer for a child maybe decades earlier at some point, thinking that such a prayer didn't make sense anymore. Either the Lord wasn't going to answer that prayer the way they wanted, or if they did, they would be the parents who were mistaken for grandparents when dropping off their kid at kindergarten as I have been. So old were they. But Zechariah takes a breath and not sure where, whether he could or should believe what was seen or not. He contemplates what's going on here, which is totally reasonable. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Very generous. I am an old man, my wife is just well along in years. No way is he saying to the angel, I'm an old man, she's an old woman. Tactful, that's part of him being an upright dude. Totally reasonable statement and question, but apparently not one that Gabriel 
the highly revered angel, right, appreciates. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I'm throwing that voice in there a little bit. We don't really know. He may have said, I am Gabriel, but I'm going, I am Gabriel, Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Bam, no soup for you. What? Okay, once. <laughs> Thank you, Sharon. We have a Seinfeld fan on the second pew. <laughs> Apparently, some angels don't like being talked back to. Some angels don't appreciate having their words or their authority or their commission questioned. Verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. What's up? It's like me following that car around the Costco parking lot, just trying to, why are you so slow? <laughs> just, just go. Don't go to Costco during. Meanwhile, the people uh, were waiting for Zechariah, wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When the priests normally came out of the Holy of Holies, they had a blessing to give to the people who were gathered and waiting and watching and on whose behalf they had been offering sacrifices or in this case, incense. They were expecting and waiting for a blessing for divine words from the priests to them, for them, from God. And they got nothing. And the people realized that though they had not encountered God in a personal, powerful way, they were witnessing or encountering someone who just had. Verse 23, when his time of service was completed, Zechariah returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. And then there's this period of silence, a gift maybe to Zechariah. She goes into seclusion, Elizabeth. Zechariah is just silent. Doesn't, have to, doesn't get to talk, but instead is called to contemplation for a number of months, which could be really powerful. God had been silent for 400 years. What's God doing now? Must have been one of the questions going through his head. Silent no prophetic words, no active prophets in Israel or by the people of God among them. For 400 years, the prophets had gone silent. And then seemingly out of nowhere, without warning, an angel appears to an ordinary priest in the regular rhythm of Israel's devotion and worship, announcing or at least alluding to the arrival or advent of not just a prophet, but the Lord. And the purpose of this child, baby, boy, that would be given to him and Elizabeth was to, quote, make ready a people prepared for the Lord, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, to make ready a people for the Lord. Are we ready? Are we ready? To make ready a people for the Lord implies that we people are not always necessarily ready for the Lord and his coming, his arriving, his advent, his kingdom 
and that there are things that can be done and maybe even that we can do to prepare for such. And this is how John the Baptist, and he wasn't actually a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Methodist, you know that. Not a Pentecostal, not a Catholic, but one who baptized those who repented of their sin and their sinfulness. This is how he prepared people for the way of the Lord. He was a prophet in the way and in the spirit and the power of Elijah who would not primarily baptize, though yes, he did baptize, but only those who were willing to be reconciled to those with whom they had broken relationships. In other words, parents to children, children to parents, husbands to wives and wives to husbands and siblings to one another and neighbor to neighbor and boss to employee and employee to employer an enemy to friend and friend to an enemy, enemy to enemy. Only those who were, being, who, were being, who were willing to be reconciled to those with whom they had broken relationships. And also those from whom they had been estranged for decades due to bitterness or jealousy or disagreement or unforgiveness. And John would also baptize those, Luke tells us, who were willing to acknowledge their disobedience and turn to the righteousness and the wisdom of God. For those interested in such, for those committed to such, John would baptize as a way of announcing and sealing God's forgiveness, God's mercy for his people, which was apparently key, necessary, to prepare them to make ready those people, to help us become ready for the Lord. We talked a lot over the last couple of years about the beginnings of the Gospels of Matthew, Jesus' teaching, chapter four, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the true, same is true in Luke, and the way Jesus begins his ministry. Do you remember? Repent and believe the good news, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of the heavens is near. The kingdom of the heavens is available in a way it hasn't been before. It is accessible. But what comes before that is repent, turn, return, shuv in Hebrew. Somehow, confession, repentance, sorrow, self-examination are all critically important from God's point of view for getting ready for the Lord. Uh, some of us have grown up, most of us have heard about uh, the sinner's prayer, right? As if it's sort of you pray that prayer and you get into heaven as if that's the key and ticket. And obviously the scriptures are way more nuanced and complicated and fuller and richer and more involved in just that. But there is something important about acknowledging as John the Baptist would, as the angel says to Zechariah about his little baby to be born, and as John the Baptist would about calling people to repentance, restoring parents and children, reconciling relationship, being reconciled, getting over bitterness, putting beyond, learning to forgive, and turning from the foolishness of the world to the wisdom and the righteousness or the goodness of God. And so as it turns out, surprise, surprise, this is what Advent historically has been about for the church. And not to say that we shouldn't uh, go to holiday parties and uh, drink and enjoy and eat and 
gifts and tinsel and flowers and all kinds of beautiful, wonderful things that go along with our culture's preparation for Christmas, but the church's preparation for the advent or the arrival of the Messiah has always been about self-reflection, confession, and repentance as a way to prepare for the king and the kingdom. I was reading a little uh, Dallas Willard this week, uh, ran across this line, thought I'd share it with you. Here we go. Sin always splits the self to some degree, divides a person's soul. You know that you have harmed yourself and others, but you probably are not going to come to terms with that because you're carrying on a charade of righteousness, even if you don't believe it. So confession is very deep in the process of discovering the soul. And that's, uh, I sort of pulled those couple of sentences out of context, which was rich in of itself. But I thought that was helpful too. Sin always splits the self to some degree. You know that you've harmed yourself and others, but you probably are not gonna come, uh, come to terms with that because you're carrying on a charade of righteousness, even if you don't believe it. So confession is very deep in the process of discovering the soul. As it turns out, we are, going, we are beginning Advent this year by celebrating the Lord's Supper together and we will end, we will finish Advent on the evening of the 24th by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And when Jesus invites us to his table, he invites all of us just as we are, sinners and all, but he invites us also to self-examination, to reflection, to confession, to a reuniting of our soul by acknowledging the sin within us and wanting to be rid of that instead of clinging to it like a best friend. So uh, we're gonna spend a minute or two right now in silence and in confession, uh, preparing to receive the grace of God anew through his table, his meal, his feast. But may God help us this morning and over the course of Advent to come as we go through Luke 1, to examine ourselves, to reflect on God's goodness and greatness, how good he's been to us, and about his mercy toward us. Let's pray. With Isaiah, God, we acknowledge and confess that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. 
We have gone our own way. We have done our own thing. We are strong-willed and self-willed people. From top to bottom and left to right, have mercy on us. We have lived in bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. We have remained content, it seems, at times, estranged from those who love us or whom we love or used to love and can love again. Reconcile us, give us the courage to be reconciled, to reconcile, to reunite with people in our lives. People who have, uh, with whom we have let things come between us. Save us from foolishness, from waywardness, from shallowness. Save us from the sin that so easily entangles. Draw us into your wisdom, into the joy of your salvation, into your kind of righteousness and goodness, purity of heart and mind and spirit. Help us in this regard during this season in particular. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah noted, we all like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God made him, Paul wrote, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If we confess our sins, John wrote, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, you are forgiven, we are forgiven. Thanks be to God.